The Water Values Podcast, Session 153. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. have a great show for you today. We have Glenn Barnes uh, and he is going to talk to us about water finance and a bunch of issues related to that. Uh, we also have Erin Bonnie Casey coming back for a Bluefield on Tap segment where, where she will talk about some of the research that Bluefield Research has done on rate issues. So a little housekeeping before we get to the show. Thank you very much. We picked up some more uh, five-star ratings and we got a great review on Apple Podcasts by K.H. Rushett. She's he or she says great podcast, great topics, guests, and insight about the industry and where it's headed. I eagerly await each new episode. Well, thanks very much, KH Rushett, for that great review and the five star rating on Apple Podcast. Much appreciated. Now, a quick programming note: um, the next podcast will drop on the third Monday in September because on the third Tuesday in September I'll be in Austin, Texas, at the. Um, one Water Summit for the U.S. Water Alliance. So if you're going to be there, let me know. I'd love to have, uh, connect with you and, and catch up and see what's going on in your world of water down there. So if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, you can go to thewatervalues.com, click on the little PayPal button, and donate in any denomination you see fit. It's all greatly appreciated and helps defray the cost of putting on the podcast. So with that, let's get to Aaron Bonnie Casey if, with our Bluefield on Tap segment before we get to Glenn Barnes talking about water finance. So here's Aaron Bonnie Casey. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Aaron, welcome back for another session of Bluefield on Tap. Great to have you back. How you been? been a busy summer. Thanks for having me. You bet. Always great to have someone from Bluefield on. Um, uh, so there's been a lot going on. Bluefield has done some uh, research recently into uh, water rates. Can you can you tell us a little about that research? Yeah. So we do this every year. And what we're looking at is how um, water and wastewater utility bills are changing over time. And we do that. We look at the 50 largest cities in the U.S. as kind of a benchmark for the market as a whole. And what we found is that over this past year, um, rates have increased on average 3.6% since 2018. And I know that doesn't seem like a big number, but um, for one thing, that kind of average number masks a lot of variability between cities. And it's also important to keep in mind that that's you know, well over the rate of inflation or the growth of the consumer price index, things like that. So what that means is that, um, you know, water and sewer bills are becoming more expensive for the average consumer over time, which raises a lot of questions around um, affordability and how utilities are going to manage that problem going forward. Right. And so uh, for these rate increases, are we looking at, is are, are these infrastructure driven? Are they OPEX driven. Do we have any any data on that? Yeah. So I mean, I guess most directly, it's re- it's related to um, OPEX because when utility budgets typically they rely on their ratepayers to fund operations, and then for capital improvement expenses, um, they're looking more at you know loans and grants and um, municipal bonds. Uh, but I will say that we've seen operating expenses go up significantly uh, over time. 
both in total terms and in terms of as a percentage of the total. Um, and I, that relates directly to the fact that we've seen a lot of underinvestment in capital expenditures. And what that means is that um, we're, since we're not investing in uh, maintaining and upgrading our systems, they become much more expensive to operate. So, um, for example, if you're proactively replacing and maintaining your pipe networks, it's cheaper in the long run than responding to kind of emergency pipe bursts. And that's where we are right now. Um, or on the other hand, if you invest in ener more energy efficient pumps, uh, you could drive down your operating expenses, but we don't see utilities being really proactive about that. They tend to be much more reactive in the infrastructure investments that they're making. Yeah, so deferred maintenance is kind of catching up to us here on the rate front. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, what about what are utilities doing to um, to, to assist lower income customers? Because as as okay. utility rates increase, obviously it's going to eat into a greater portion of what's already a, a very minimal amount of disposable income. So how how are they addressing that? Right. So I think when you're talking about you know what are households able to do to drive down water demand. Um, there's there's limited things that they can do uh, in terms of reducing water use, um, and we have seen a decline in, in per capita water use over the past couple of decades related to you know more efficient appliances and low flow shower heads and things like that. Um, the problem for the utility is that if they're selling less water, they're bringing in less income, but they're um, expenses don't go down uh, at the same rate as um, it's, it's not as tied to the volume of water that they're uh, sending out as you might imagine. Um, so as a result, every time water use declines, rates have to go up so the utility can keep uh, maintain that revenue stream. So when you're talking about affordability for some of the most at-risk households, um, cities are increasingly realizing that they're going to have to come up with programs that specifically target um, these vulnerable populations, and they're doing that through um, grant programs. There's also Philadelphia is a great example where they're doing a, um, a tiered or uh, um, their TAP program, which basically prices water based on income levels, um, so that the you know the most vulnerable and poorest households are paying actually less per gallon than other households. Um, there's also some pricing that you can do where you establish lower rates for what I would call um, kind of critical water use and higher rates on higher volumes of water use, water use that you might maybe would consider luxury uses. And so the idea is, you know, everybody needs kind of a baseline amount of water for drinking, for cooking, for cleaning. Um, once you get beyond that, you know, and you're using water for filling a swimming pool or uh, watering a lawn, things like that, those are luxury uses and you can price them at a higher rate and maintain the affordability for those kind of critical uses. Terrific. How, how are customers receiving those types of, uh, those types of rate increases? You know, I, I think it's challenging because, you know, as, as kind of talking about before, a lot of the prices that utilities or the costs that utilities incur are fixed. They don't depend on how much water the utility actually sends out. Um, and so that's in direct contrast to the power sector, for example, where you can really see, oh, if I decrease my power use, I decrease my bills, and the power company decreases their costs. And so conservation can play um, 
a really critical role in main, in controlling those costs. It's much harder on the water side um, because you have to pay to maintain the system in um, you know a state of, for good operations, just so that you have a critical water supply. And that really, even if you're selling no water, you still may uh, incur those maintenance costs. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, I'm so glad you came on today uh, to share these insights with us from Bluefield. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, hope you have a great finish to your summer. Great. You too. Happy Labor Day. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye, Aaron. Bye. Well, as usual, the Bluefield research folks do a great job uh, informing us of current market trends, you know, th issues in the industry, things of that nature. And Aaron Bonnie Casey did a great job uh, talking about uh, some of the research that Bluefield Research has done on water rates. Uh, so thanks so much, uh, Bluefield and Aaron, and uh, we look forward to the next Bluefield on Tap segment. So with that, let's get on to Glenn Barnes, who is going to do a terrific job talking about water finance issues. Uh, he's got a tremendous amount of experience, and you're really going to appreciate uh, the, the perspectives that Glenn brings to the table. So here we go. Here's Glenn Barnes. Well, Glenn, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad to have you on. Could you, uh, uh, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, Dave, thanks so much for having me. And, and I think like many of your guests, I have uh, an unusual background and didn't really <laughs> expect to find myself working in water. Uh, I was an English literature major when I was an undergrad and uh, thought I would take a year off before getting a Ph.D. To, in uh, poetry and, you know, go find some cozy liberal arts college to teach in. And in that year, I started working for an environmental nonprofit, doing door-to-door -door canvassing on some uh, advocacy work, really enjoyed it, and ended up spending seven years in the environmental nonprofit field. Uh, went back to graduate school to get a Master of Public Administration degree and, and thought, again, I would go back to the nonprofit world. But during that two years of grad school, I got a research assistantship with the UNC Environmental Finance Center. And I ended up staying at that center for more than 12 years. And that's really where I got uh, heavily involved in drinking water, doing training and technical assistance with water systems and helping to do data analysis and build some tools as well. And uh, that ended up really being my career. So now I am uh, with Water Finance Assistance as their director. I'm uh, founder of this new group, and we're going to be continuing to do some really good training and technical assistance work, I think, with water systems. Oh, that's awesome. Real, very quick question, kind of off the wall. English lit major, um, who's, your, who's your favorite English author? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I think in, a, in some ways I'm maybe a, a more of a classical guy. I really like Shakespeare. Uh, so my father was an English teacher in high school, and he uh, was a big Shakespeare fan, and he started reading me Macbeth, I think, I want to say I was six years old. The first wow. time he read me Macbeth, and and I think my comment to him was, I, "Daddy, I think I'm a little too young for this." <laughs> <laughs> he was very enthusiastic about uh, about Shakespeare, and I think that wore off on me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and I had a really great uh, Shakespeare professor in college as well. Yeah. Good deal. Well, I'm I'm a Thomas Hardy guy, but in any event, let's get on to the topic of the day. Um, so you, you're, you indicated you're at this new group, the Water Finance uh, Assistance. What, can you tell us a little about what that group is, what it does? Sure. Uh, so this is a group that I've uh, founded in the last couple of months. And my goal with the organization is uh, to, to help water systems out in any way possible through either training, 
or technical assistance work or some data analysis for them. But our big goal, as I think should be the goal of, of every water system, is to ensure that we have safe and reliable drinking water today, but also into the future. And, and I think a lot of the work that I've done, especially when I was working with the Environmental Finance Center Network, is with smaller water systems across the country. And a lot of them are really living almost paycheck to paycheck, if you will. You know, they're just bringing in enough money to cover their day-to-day -day expenses. They don't necessarily have the time or the financial capacity for long-term planning. And so I want to help water systems think about what's important to you, how can the water system best serve the community, and how will it continue to serve the community for years and years to come? Because I, I can't imagine a future, maybe there is one, and the technology just hasn't been created yet, but I really can't imagine a future, at least in my lifetime, where we're not going to need a water system, a centralized water system with a well, or some type of water source and a conveyance system and treatment. And so I think it's important to think about, you know, we've got to have these water systems available and, and running well, not just today, but for our, our, you know, children and grandchildren and into the future. And in order to do that, I think systems need to be uh, well-managed and well-financed. That's really my background is in finance and management. And then obviously they need to have people who understand treatment and uh, the engineering side, which is not my background, but I think is obviously equally important. Yeah, yeah. So, so take us, you know, take what are the basics? Drink, talk, talk to us about drinking water basics and what, you know, what you're thinking that uh, utilities need to uh, be well-versed in or, or have a good grasp on. What are the basics? Well, I think the real basic to step back and say, you know, we have about 150,000 federally regulated water systems in the United States. About 50,000 of those are community systems that are serving towns or cities or neighborhoods or mobile home parks. And then we have about 100,000 non-community water systems that are serving maybe a church or a school or an office, whatever the case is. All of those water systems have a set of users that rely on the water being safe uh, to consume and there when needed, you know, that they can turn on the tap, water comes out, uh, they can flush the toilet, wastewater goes away, whatever the case is. You know, these water systems have a responsibility to serve a certain uh, group of people, and that public service is a part of the reason why water systems exist. So it's really vital that we have that water in order to have a town, have a city, have an office building, have a school, whatever the case is. If we didn't have safe, reliable water, those uh, types of communities wouldn't be able to exist anymore. So the real basic is we exist to serve a, a population of people, and in order to do that, we have to have good infrastructure. Uh, we have to manage our water supply properly. Uh, we don't want to end up in a situation with, say, uh, Cape Town was in uh, last year or the year before when, you know, a city of 4 million people, city I actually used to live in, almost ran out of water. A lot of that was a water management issue as well as a drought issue. And then we want to make sure, obviously, that we have talented people to be able to operate the system, understand the engineering side, understand the technical side over time. So the real basic to step back, I think, is to say this water system exists to serve a community of people, and how can it best do that? And that's really the direction of some of the work that, that we're doing with water finance assistance is – 
trying to look at what are your priorities for your water system individually and how can we help you measure those? Are you doing a good job? And if it turns out you're not really doing a good job, how do we do that job better for you over time? Right, right. And so uh, in terms of uh, utilities that maybe are not doing such a good job, what are the most common things you're finding uh, that that they need to improve upon? Well, I think uh, for a lot of water systems, as, as I mentioned already, financially speaking, they may be struggling a little bit. And it may not be a struggle for them to cover their day-to-day costs. You know, so there are certain costs you have of running a water system, the, the salaries of your employees, the taxes and insurance you have to pay, the testing costs, your, your uh, electricity, you know, for pumping water around, treatment chemicals, et cetera. Most systems, I think, are able to bring in enough money, generally speaking, to cover those costs, although some even struggle to do that, and they end up having to subsidize out of their savings or out of their governmental system, out of the general fund of the government. You need money for more than that. You need money for long-term infrastructure investment, for repairs, but also uh, refurbishment and replacement of infrastructure. And if you're a growing community, you need money in order to uh, invest in new infrastructure so that way you can support new growth. And so I think, you know, money is is a persistent issue for a lot of systems. And I know uh, other guests who have been on the podcast recently have talked about that as well as, as a challenge. Um, I think about the interview you did with Manny Teodoro recently where he was saying, you know, there's not a lot of incentive necessarily for governmental systems to raise rates. It makes it politically unpopular and it can be somebody else's, you know, some other board's problem in the future, but you need that money for long-term investment. And so, you know, for all the years I've spent working with water systems all around the United States, I think, you know, having that available money for today and into the future is important. And then also at the same time, because maybe we've lagged a bit in the investment in the systems and we're getting caught up now, along with new regulatory requirements, the price of water is going up faster than say inflation, other utilities, salaries, et cetera. So then you get an affordability concern that comes in here. And so you need more money, but you also have an increasing affordability concern and immediately you can see where those two priorities start to butt heads with each other. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you talk about affordability a little more? Like uh, how do you measure it? What are uh, you know acceptable levels, things of that nature? Yeah, this is a really great question, and I think a very difficult question to answer in a lot of ways because there really is not a, a nationally accepted standard for household affordability of water. You'll hear some numbers uh, thrown out there, 2%, 2.5% of median household income, and those were used by EPA 20-plus uh, years ago as measurements of kind of the overall system affordability. You know, can the water system be able to charge enough to its customers to be sustainable? It was never really meant to be a household affordability measure. And I think, you know, we're, we're starting to look a little bit more to say, well, you know, we shouldn't maybe look at a median household. We should look at a low-income household. We should look at the people sort of on the edges who are struggling, people who have to make hard decisions about paying for housing and electric utilities and food and medicine and other health care. And I've talked with a number of social service agencies that help these people out, you know, that provide bill assistance uh, occasionally for water, though sometimes it will end up being for rent or electricity. 
And what they tell me is that often the problem is that people are either lose their jobs or they are uh, cut back in their hours, so their overall income comes down, or they have a, a really high unexpected expense. And there was a report that came out about a year ago that, that made quite a bit of waves, I think, saying that 40% of American households could not afford an unexpected $400 expense. And, you know, I think for a lot of water systems, some of their customers are living paycheck by paycheck. And if they have any disruption to that, either in the level of income or in the level of expenses that they're expecting, now they're in trouble and they're not able to cover their bills. And I think that's really where affordability comes in. So in, in some of the work that we've been doing, because of, there's not a national definition of affordability, because it really varies community by community, we talk about maybe ways to maximize bill payments as a proxy for affordability, because there are some people who can afford to pay bills and just choose not to for whatever reason. And, you know, those are people we want to eliminate. And then we also want to understand maybe who's really struggling to pay the bill and what could we do to help them out? Yeah. So can you can you dive into that a little more in terms of how, what are the strategies to maximize bill payment? Well, it's it's interesting because I think when you talk with water systems, just have a conversation with their uh, their billing people or their water system administrator, whoever is handling kind of customer side of the water system. They will tell you that there's often a handful of people who habitually do not pay their bills and are habitually behind. And again, some of those people have legitimate affordability issues, and some of them uh, maybe have what what we dub a willingness to pay problem. You know, they're they're just not paying for whatever reason, and they think that they can maybe get away with skirting it a little bit. And so, some of the analysis that we've been able to do with water systems is through, say, a year of billing data and to look for the customers who seem to be in arrears on their bills consistently over the course of the year. And for many water systems, this is not a high percentage of their customers, but it takes an enormous amount of their time and effort to deal with these people. So, you know, a lot of water systems, if you don't pay your bill, they'll send out a reminder bill. They'll make a phone call. They'll do a door hanging, maybe another phone call. And if it gets to it, they'll send somebody out to cut the water off. Most people who have their water cut off within 24 to 36 hours come up with some money. So then you have to send somebody back out to turn the water back on. Now, that water system may charge a fine or a penalty, but it's often not enough to cover the real cost of all the staff time that goes into dealing with a small set of problem customers. So a little of the analysis that we can do is to look at who these people are. And if the system is small enough, sometimes it's, it's possible, believe it or not, to just pick up the phone and call the people and have a conversation and find out what's going on. But there's a couple of other strategies that I think are out there. I mean, one is that you can have enforcement policies about nonpayment and, and institute them. You know, some systems will say, well, if you don't pay, we'll cut you off, and then they don't cut you off. And I think that can lead to a lot of people, uh, you know, understanding that they can game the system a little bit. So enforcing policies that are there, uh, you can work out payment plans with people to, you know, help them get caught up if they did have that sort of unexpected expense or revenue shortfall. You can set up uh, bill payments that are automatically happen through credit card or bank accounts, so that way you eliminate the people who just forget to pay their bills. 
I mean, I've even done that uh, one time when we went on vacation, forgot to pay a bill before we left and the water got shut off. So there's a lot of strategies that you can have in there, but I think you've really got to focus in on understanding why it is that the small group of people are not habitually paying and try to get that number down as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. What about customer assistance plans? What are you seeing there? Well, seen a, seen a lot of interesting things there, and I know you you did a podcast with uh, one of my former colleagues, Stacey Barrager, about a year or two ago on some research the UNC Environmental Finance Center did on the legality of some of these uh, programs. Yep. But you know, you'll see utilities trying to set up some type of bill assistance, where uh, you know if you're having trouble paying your bill. Customers can, say, donate money to a pool that can then be used to help low-income customers out, or they may take revenue from other sources. I feel like there's a uh, the central Arkansas system, I want to say, takes non-ratepayer source revenue, maybe from, like, cell phone receivers on water towers or things like that, to uh, help low-income customers. But often you need some type of community partner who is looking at the eligibility of these customers what is their real need that are often servicing them for things like rent assistance or, or uh, electric bill assistance. But a lot of it right now is being left either to the utility itself or uh, the town itself or some type of nonprofit uh, religious service organization, for example, or a nonprofit group in town. What we don't have for water is what we see for some other utilities, which are federal programs to help. You know, there's a low-income heating assistance, low-income weatherization programs. Um, there's programs for helping low-income people get phone service. That's not actually paid for out of federal taxes. It's a surcharge on people's phone lines. But we don't necessarily see that equivalent type of program in drinking water. So a lot of it is falling on the individual community to figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah, and you, I think you're right. The the regulatory hurdles, uh, at least for rate regulated utilities, are substantial uh, because it, it it's kind of goes against the 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 basic ten, uh, tenets of uh, rate regulation that everyone gets the same you know same rate uh, within the same customer class and things like that. So I think it's going to, without express statutory authority, it can be difficult to get those programs set up. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly in, in some states we've seen that they have a um, – the state will allow essentially a customer class for elderly or lower-income customers. And then I think the one that a lot of people are really curious to see how it goes is what Philadelphia is doing where it's actually coming up with some type of income-based rate structure. Uh, you know, that's sort of one of the first places in the country to do something like that. But I think it's still a little bit too early in their process to know if that's going to be a good solution across the board. Yeah, Philadelphia is definitely on my radar. I'd love to talk to someone uh, once they have a little more experience with their their uh, income-based rate approach. Uh, well, we, we've kind of d- done a lot on affordability here. What what are some of the other financial planning metrics? Because that's kind of what your your main main uh, gist is. What uh, what are the financial planning metrics that utilities need to be aware of and need to track? Well, yeah, and so I think the metrics that are out there are really in terms of financial planning about do you have enough money today to run the system, do you have enough money uh, in the future to run the system, and how is your cash can also be an issue for some systems, especially if they have uh, very seasonal water use. 
And so some of the, the metrics here that we encourage water systems to look at are, you know, pretty basic key financial indicators that, that businesses would run. So it would be something, for example, like an operating ratio. What's the ratio of your annual operating revenue to your annual expenses? Obviously, you want the revenue higher than the expenses. And you want it a little bit higher, too. It doesn't – you want, don't want it to be just kind of a one-to-one -one relationship where you bring in just exactly enough money – because you're going to have unexpected expenses, you're going to have debt service to pay, uh, you're going to have savings for future capital needs or for unexpected revenue downturns. So operating ratio is one of the really key ones that we see. And then the debt service coverage ratio, which is to say, all right, take your annual operating revenue, take out all your annual operating expenses – do you have enough money then left over to pay the money that you've borrowed, whether that's through a bond or a federal program like State Revolving Fund or USDA or even just from a bank? So that's another great metric that we look at. Um, what's the annual investment in a capital improvement plan or asset management plan? So if you've actually put a plan together, come up with a, a number that you need every year. Are you actually meeting that number or how close are you to meeting that number? And then looking, as I said, at cash flow, do you actually have enough money right now in uh, liquid cash to cover the bills that you have on hand right now? I think those are those are all excellent uh, things. I've, I've heard about all of them before. Uh, do you have kind of rules of thumb for what those metrics are, like what your, your operating ratio is, the debt service coverage ratio, things like that? I think, again, the, you know, for, say, a, an operating ratio, the, the minimum you would want is one, that you would want the revenue to at least equal the expenses. And oftentimes we encourage systems when calculating this to also include annual depreciation as a cost. So that's a way to see a little bit of money that could go into future capital investment. But I think oftentimes you'd want that number to be, you know, higher, maybe even as high as 1.2 with depreciation, maybe even as high as 1.5 without it. So that way you've got some cushion. You know, you've got some money that you can set aside for unexpected needs or for revenue, uh, stability over time, or for you know, future capital investment. So typically I'd say with the operating ratio, 1.2 is a good measure to hit. In terms of the debt service coverage ratio, I think most uh, debt covenants, so when you borrow money, you'll have a debt agreement with the lender they will often specify what that ratio needs to be. So, uh, for example, I did some work a few years ago in the state of Minnesota with their state revolving fund program, and their requirement is a debt service coverage ratio of 1.05. So you would have a little bit more than enough every year because, again, there may be an unexpected revenue shortfall. Uh, wow. I think other places – One point uh, – no, that's okay. No, 1.05 – Wow, that that just seems really low to me. I've the the before you said that the lowest I've ever, the in the systems I've worked on they've always been one point two five is the is the absolute lowest, and you got to start looking for rate cases at one point three five. So that's just that's just amazing to me that one point zero five. That's one of the lower numbers that I've seen. I think one point two to one point three is more common. Yeah. And, and again, you know, you may have internally, even if the requirement is lower, say 1.05, 1.1, you may internally say we'd be more comfortable with this number being more like 1.2. Yeah, you're getting pretty thin when you're getting down to 1.05 would be my, my thought. 
Well, and certainly there are so many factors that can impact revenue over the course of a year. You know, you might have a, a particularly rainy year where people aren't irrigating their yards a lot. I, I'm from North Carolina. Uh, we had a very rainy spring, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the systems here had lower revenue throughout the spring than they normally do as a result. Right. You can have, uh, you know, line breaks that are unexpected. You can have a lot of non-revenue water, so maybe – uh, you know, due to leaking or bad meters, whatever the case is, uh, your costs might go up a lot. You could see your electric costs unexpectedly go up if, if you have time of use electric rates or things like that. So there are so many factors, as well as just who is moving in and out of your community and and whether or not they want to uh, use water in a big way or, or use water in a small way. And then certainly for a lot of communities, I think in particular smaller communities, they end up with a single disproportionately large water customer. Uh, here in the southeast, we had a lot of towns that had pulp and paper mills or textile mills. And if that facility shut down, it could often be 50% or more of their water sales just gone overnight. And so for those communities, you know, a lot of the cost of providing water service from salaries to infrastructure to testing costs, insurance, et cetera, it doesn't change based on how much water you treat and sell. So you can end up with, uh, you know, a big revenue shortfall, but your expenses not really dropping very much. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. Um, essentially, reliance on too large of a customer. I was just reading an article recently about uh, a water system in Massachusetts where a, a school or a university uh, closed one of its campuses in the utilities service area, and they've just never been able to recover for it. And all of a sudden, their reserves are going from like twenty million to five million because <laughs> they they didn't raise rates uh, immediately to uh, you know account for that lost customer. Uh, and now they're in a world of hurt because they're having to raise rates. You know what everyone everyone thinks is uh, an unreasonable amount. I mean, can you talk about that that kind of economic development? Uh, you know, the, how that how that relationship uh, with with kind of customers, economic development, how that relates to financial metrics? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this has been an interesting area to delve into with communities because some of them, uh, like we've just been talking about, have that large customer or a couple of large customers. And you can run some numbers to see, okay, what percentage of your revenue or what percentage of your sales are coming from these customers just to give people a sense of, you know, how vulnerable are you to a big revenue loss if they were to pick up and leave for whatever reason. And, you know, we think of maybe a school or a hospital as being a more secure, large user than, say, a factory or a business. But as, as you mentioned with the Massachusetts example, even schools can be consolidated within communities for money-saving reasons, and that can be a, a big loss of water, um, and certainly hospitals are, are closing as well in some parts of the country. So when we look at economic development metrics, what we really care about is can we encourage existing big users, business and industry, to stay within a community, and can we encourage new businesses to locate to that community? And in looking at these economic development metrics, I've actually had a number of conversations with chambers of commerce and economic development groups, you know, the people whose job it is to encourage industry to come to a county or to come to a city. And what they really talk about is, you know, any community given enough lead time, say a year, could 
increase their capacity, build water lines, increase pressure, whatever is needed to bring one of these big water users to town. But if I am an industry looking for a town to locate in and there's a town that could serve my needs with water capacity today and another one that would take a year, I'm likely to go with the one today. So, you know, price is a little bit of a, of a consideration, but maybe not a huge one unless water is a significant part of that business's operation. And I think water quality can be a big deal if you're talking about, say, a, a brewery, a bottling facility, somewhere, something where water is going out in the final product. But what a lot of uh, businesses are looking for is the availability of water and, and good infrastructure today. Is the community investing in infrastructure or are we brought in to cover years of the community not paying for infrastructure? And so I think there's metrics that you could look at of, you know, what's your available supply given a constraint from, say, your, your withdrawal permit or your storage capacity or your treatment capacity versus your peak daily usage and how much water do you have left over? And that's an easy metric for systems to run if they're able to pull those numbers. But there's some really interesting ones that we've started to look at of what is the potential revenue per square acre, per square foot of development of different types of businesses and, and are there certain types of businesses that are higher water users than others? So there's a North American industry classification system or NAICS codes that you can get data from the census about uh, whether they're increasing or decreasing in different geographic areas. Well, we can look at how much water do those different codes tend to use and can we get more of those water using, using businesses to come in? Because often for a lot of communities, if they have excess capacity right now, it would not cost them a lot more to sell more water, but it would bring in significantly more revenue. Yeah, yeah. I, when whenever I talk to uh, economic development officials or mayors or things like that, they always say that you know one of the first things new new businesses ask is what about the water supply. They're always interested in utilities. Um, so I, I think you're you're right on there. Um, in, in terms of are when you do have that user that is is taking up uh, a larger than you know a, a significant portion of the uh, water supply. Are, is, have you seen any uh, like red flags or what are what are some issues that might might identify uh, that potential big user going away or is there is there a level of usage that that you see as kind of being um, that where a, a system ought to think about diversifying its its customer base. You know, I'm just kind of curious about about that aspect of it. Well, you know, it, it, this is often a tough issue, especially for smaller communities, because that disproportionately large customer, as I mentioned, could be as much as half of their water sales. And if that customer is going to be there and exist in the community, it's a great boon for the rest of the water customers, right? You've got one industrial customer paying for a lot of water, helping to cover the cost of infrastructure, keeping rates down generally. Now, that industry is also likely the biggest employer in town, the biggest taxpayer in town. There's a lot of economic benefit to having that. So I always am a little cautious when we talk about some of the potential issues of not discouraging communities from going out and getting that sort of large water customer. But I think there, there are two issues that we've seen that, that we run into with these particular um, t 
types of customers. One is that they pick up and leave entirely. And the other is that they may institute some type of water saving within their own operation. So, you know, I've seen examples of uh, this big disproportionately large water customer being a prison, for example. And uh, prisons use a lot of water. And they may institute some type of low-flow toilets, low-flow shower heads, cutting back on irrigation, where they might reduce their own water use 25% because that prison is paying a water bill. It's part of their operating budget. They're trying to conserve water, do something good for the environment, good for their budget. But then that's a big revenue loss for the community. So I think one of the biggest things that a community can do or a water system can do is to have some type of contact with either that disproportionately large customer directly or with the people within, say, if it's a governmental system within the government who are uh, talking with that uh, particularly large, dis disproportionately large user to understand, are you going to be instituting any kind of water saving in the future? You know, how are things going? Are you thinking about leaving? Are there concerns economically right now, because those types of conversations are going on often within communities, but they often do not include representatives from the water utility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Glenn, it, it, time has flown. I'm looking at my watch here and we're, uh, we've been talking over half an hour. So I, I think you've been fantastic. I, I always learn something from folks uh, during these interviews and you've been no different. I, I think it's been great to talk about these financial metrics and ratios and customer affordability and things like that. Uh, do you have a leave behind message that you'd like to uh, like to leave the listeners with? Well, I think my leave behind message is, you know, we have a responsibility as a water sector to provide safe and reliable water today and into the future, and that there are a lot of data out there to help you make good policy decisions, good financial decisions. And I think water systems are often sitting on more data than maybe they realize or they have time to use, whether it's through financial statements, operational data, billing and customer usage data, the census, SIDWIS. There's a lot of data out there that can be really helpful to narrow in on understanding your customer base better, understanding your water system better, and then making the best policy choices so that way we have good functioning systems into the future. Great. That's, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Glenn. Uh, for those folks who are interested uh, in uh, finding out more about this, where can they go to find your information and to find more about your, your work there at Water Finance Assistance? Well, the, the best place to find us is our website, which is waterfinanceassistance.com, and that has an update on all of our current work and an ability to reach out to me uh, from that website and to email me or call me. And then uh, we also have a uh, Twitter account that we tend to post to uh, every day, and the handle for that is at H2O Finance. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Glenn. You've been fantastic. Really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me on, Dave. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Glenn. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Glenn Barnes. Uh, did a phenomenal job describing these, you know, so what can be some pretty complex issues. And I thought he did just a great job. You can tell he's got a lot of experience uh, in the sector and has uh, worked on a lot of those issues.
Well, I'd love to hear what you found interesting about the podcast. You can uh, leave your comments on the show notes. You can find those at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 153. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 153. Uh, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water, fa- water values. You can tweet at me using my handle, which is at DTM 1993. And, uh, you can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter. You can do that at thewatervalues.com. Comes out uh, whenever a podcast is released. Uh, so, and you, oh, the listener survey. Yes, thank you very much. We we got a great response on the listener survey last week, uh, and. and uh, I'm going to shut that listener survey down here pretty soon. So uh, if you do have a few minutes, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd head over to thewatervalues.com and take the survey. Or you can, if you're a newsletter subscriber, there'll be a link in that too. Uh, So again, would appreciate that. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.